This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look today at verses 12 and 13. While you're turning there, we'll step away just to tell you about my upcoming week. I'm going to join Becky Gloss and have some surgery. And the pastors thought, since I've been limping, and everybody's curious why I'm limping, um, just to not be a distraction as much as possible to tell you. Remember the, some of you may remember I had a bike wreck back in August. It's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> so I had a concussion, chipped some teeth. Thank you, Dr. Bradshaw. Fixed my teeth. I look better than before. Broke some ribs and um, found out a few weeks ago I ruptured my Achilles tendon. So I need surgery on Tuesday. Um, while you're praying for Becky, pray for me. Um, but it's, um, it's, it's good when you're my age that they actually will operate on you. They're like, hey, he's got a few more years. So... It's not a sad thing at all. There's a good prognosis. I've been limping and really wondering, am I going to be limping the rest of my life? And so there's hope that uh, this is going to fix everything. And I hate to be a distraction, but probably the next time you see me, I'll be in a cast and it's going to kind of be hard to hide. So we thought I should tell you. And I appreciate your prayers and your concerns. Philippians chapter 2. Jake just did a wonderful job of exalting God's Word. We're so looking forward to encouraging our high view of Scripture. And so what an honor it is this morning to join you and, and read God's Word and focus on God's Word here in Paul's letter to the Philippians, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. May the Lord bless reading of His Word. This is a passionate exhortation to pursue holiness. Gospel-driven holiness. This is a passionate exhortation to pursue gospel-driven holiness. He says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved... Because of the splendor of the preceding passage, the Christ hymn, we looked at last week, one theologian said it leaves one in breathless wonder and worship, which Zach did a great job of allowing us to just think about the glory of Christ. It's, it's easy to forget Paul's aim here. 
But Paul hasn't forgotten. Verse, verses 5 through 11 is, is profound theology about Jesus Christ. He's our, our example. He's our empowering present. He's the one that allows us to walk in victory over all the selfishness, all the ambition, all the conceit that divides churches. That is Paul's aim. Therefore, in our text, Paul is drawing conclusions from who Christ is and who we are in Christ based on what he's just said about Christ so that he can return to this appeal for unity. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then if you skip down to verse 14 here in chapter 2, that we'll look at next year. He's coming back to, to unity. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. It's, it's a call for unity. These verses we're looking at today, it's important if we want to understand them that we see this contact. We keep coming back. We keep circling back to unity because there's seeds of division in this church and the Lord wants us to do this. It's important, especially, I think, for us. I was reading about a little town in South Georgia recently, Fitzgerald's, Georgia. It's about 150 miles south of Atlanta. It has a topiary. Did I say it right, Jeff? Topiary. I've been working on it all morning. English is a hard language. Topiary. It's, it's, it's one of these things where they build a steel frame and then they plant plants and it grows around. So you have a plant shaped like something underneath of it. And in the case of Fitzgerald, Georgia, the goal was to have a topiary of a chicken, a huge chicken. Wild chickens have run through Fitzgerald for, for decades. Who knew? In the 60s, the state of Georgia brought in a, a bunch of Asian jungle chickens and put them in a forest near Fitzgerald to encourage game hunting. The, ba the birds didn't do too well in the wild, but they flocked to Fitzgerald, and they flourished. And today, if you go to Fitzgerald, Georgia, hundreds of these chickens are running around town, and people either love them or hate them. The, the town has promoted their chickens for years. It holds an annual wild chicken festival, has a crowing contest. Businesses have metal chicken statues outside their storefronts. And so it's not surprising that a few years ago, Mayor Jim Puckett hatched a plan <laughs> to build the world's tallest topiary in the shape of a chicken. 
And he hired one of the world's top topiary guys who makes these. He's known as Topiary Joe. He's from Teleco Plains, Tennessee, in case you want one. And so you build the steel frame. The plan was to have an apartment in the chicken that guests could come and rent out. It's 64 feet tall. The steel is done. 64 feet, 10 inches tall. It's taller than the current world record of Mickey Mouse in Dubai. It weighs 16 tons. But no plants have been added. The apartment hasn't been finished. There's 9,000 people in the, in the town, and they're not happy about the fact that this chicken costs $300,000 already. They've nicknamed it Rusty. November 2nd, there was an election for mayor. One campaign sign, are you chicken tired of the politics in our city? Vote for a change. And Mayor Puckett admitted, the chicken is obviously polarizing. He said it's the most visible, visible issue in the election. In, in essence, the election was a referendum on the chicken project. He lost. Out of 1,462 votes, he got 69. He came in third. He blamed his loss on Facebook warriors complaining about the cost of the chicken. Funeral director won the election. City council immediately cut off funding for the chicken till the new mayor took office. The chicken is polarizing. I read this. Are you kidding me? The chicken is polarizing. Facebook warriors in Fitzgerald, Georgia? About a chicken? My conclusion was, ours is a crooked and twisted generation. Ours is a generation given, like few others, to grumbling and disputing. Clearly, we live in a culture that is at war with everything. If the Philippians had seeds of division, we better be eager to maintain the unity the Spirit has created in the church. Everything is polarizing. Seeds of division surround us. How can the Philippians overcome their seeds of division? How can we remain united in a world that loves to grumble and dispute? How can we shine as lights in this world? Well, the answer is be who we are. Be who we are. That's the message of these two verses. We have work to do. God is at work in us. This is the motivation for holiness all through the New Testament. How do believers live for Christ in a fallen world? They they understand who they are and they be who they are. We're new creatures in Christ. We've been made alive in Jesus. We still sin, but we've died with Christ and we've been raised with him to new life the Christian who disagrees with you is a child of God that Christ died for we we can make progress with our 
seeds of division by focusing on this gospel, by focusing on who we are and who we've been made to be. That's what this text is all about. The old is gone, the new has come. What's it mean to be in Christ? It's a big deal. This letter is written to the Philippians, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Paul uses that phrase 83 times in the New Testament. He means by it what we think of when we say Christian. But that's the phrase he uses. What does it mean to be in Christ? By faith it means we wear the Team Christ jersey. We go by the Christ name. We share in His death and resurrection. His Spirit is in us. We have a new identity, a new principle, a new heart, a new nature, a new motivation. We don't look at ourselves or others in the same way we used to. That was what Jake was saying when he said we have a biblical worldview. Be who you are. And we can maintain unity in the midst of this culture. Alright, so it's, it's vitally important to grasp from these verses as we look at them. The connection between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you've probably come to these verses and recognize that. We've got to see this connection. This text does not say, work to obtain your salvation for God's done His part. Now it's all up to you. This text does not say you may already have your salvation, but now perseverance in it depends entirely on you. And it certainly doesn't say let go and let God do it. Just relax, do nothing, the Spirit will carry you. In this text, this is what it says, Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, precisely because God is working in us. God is working both to will and to act according to His good purpose. This is how to live your Christian life. Go to the marriage thing tonight, the the seminar. This is how you live your married life. This is how you live your Christian life. This is how you live together in the church. These are critical verses. It isn't that God just strengthens us in our willing and acting. Paul's language is much stronger than that. God himself is working in us. God is working in us to will, to act, He works at that level where He changes what we want, what we desire. He works at the level of our doing. He truly empowers those who trust in Him. This this shouldn't hinder our pursuit of holiness. It should encourage us in our pursuit. And that's certainly Paul's intention in these verses. God does indeed work In his people, it it should strengthen us and encourage us. D.A. Carson said, A great deal of Western thought has gone wrong at precisely this point. We have expended huge quantities of energy pitting God's sovereignty against human responsibility 
when the Bible insists that these things belong together. We, we, we pit these against one another, but the Bible never does that. Think about the doctrine of election. Many Christians think election has to be a hindrance to evangelism. But it's not in the Bible. If you look in Acts 18, Luke records Paul battling discouragement, preaching the gospel in Corinth. You have to imagine that was discouraging. But the Lord assures him, what does he say? I have many people in that city. God's sovereignty and salvation didn't discourage him from preaching. It encouraged him to evangelize the city. Sovereignty is meant to encourage our responsibility. And it's the same in the pursuit of holiness. God's continuous, gracious, sovereign work in our lives becomes for us an encouragement, a motivation, so that we press on with fear and trembling. Two points today, because two verses. Point number one, verse 12. Point number two, verse 13. A passionate exhortation to pursue holiness. This is God's Word encouraging us as a, a church to passionately pursue holiness, godliness, Christ-likeness, spiritual growth. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is a difficult passage for some because it seems to suggest that salvation is something the individual must work out even if it is with God's help. So it, it seems difficult. But, but this isn't the point of the verse He's passionately exhorting the believers in Philippi to pursue gospel-driven holiness. We know from the context, there's seeds of division that can only be uprooted by Christ-like character in the church. And in that context, Paul commands them, work out your salvation. It, it grows this this command, this exhortation, grows out of the truths about Christ that he has just taught. Christ fully submitted to his Father. He obeyed. So, we obey. We must obey. Christ had a certain mindset. We need a certain mindset. Verse 12, work out your own salvation. Work out means this. Produce it. Bring it about. Affect it. Peter O'Brien, a commentator, says it, it's a reference to continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. Our text says, bring about your salvation. Produce your salvation. Affect your salvation by continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. John Piper says, as dangerous as this language is, it is biblical. We shouldn't think of salvation, though, as a vague, kind of distant outcome. Salvation, 
This is what Paul's thinking is daily deliverance from sin. This is our salvation. Salvation from sin. Verse 12 is an exhortation for the Philippians to produce daily salvation from sinning. Receiving the gospel means we're delivered from sin. So every day we can kill sin. We can dethrone sin. We can walk in victory. We can live worthy of the gospel. We can bring glory to Christ. Be who you are. So think about it. Let's, let's apply it to our lives. You can win the victory over, what are you thinking about? Anger? Resentment? Fear of man? Discouragement? Self-pity? Self-promotion? Hardness? Envy? Greed? Moodiness? Sulking? Indifference to the suffering of other people? Laziness, boredom, sexual sin, passiveness, laziness, lack of encouraging others, lack of joy in Christ, lack of contentment, etc. All these sins can be killed daily. Be who you are. And then imagine what a church would be like if it was filled with people like that. You do have to exert yourself. Continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. Produce your salvation. You don't have to serve sin anymore. You've been set free. He looks at, at this, this church that he loves. Again, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. He loves these guys. They're very obedient church. Very obedient Christians. He's not mad at them. This isn't the Corinthians. He reminds them of his affection for them, my beloved, and their long history of obedience. They have a long-term relationship. They've always followed his leadership. It has been a joy to be a leader, a minister, a pastor in that church. Whether he's with them, whether he's not with them, obedience, obedience. At the time of this writing, it'd probably been about 10 years since Paul planted the church. And since that time, he'd probably been there about three times. And he always found these folks teachable, responsive, quick to obey, eager, you know, edge of their seat kind of folks. He loved this church. My beloved, they're, they're some of his dearest friends. We've seen that they're partners in the gospel. His passionate exhortation to pursue holiness is couched in love for these people. They're dear to him. He has deep feelings for him. But for Paul, faith in Christ is always expressed in obedience to Christ. It's not about following rules. It's about coming under his lordship. It's about being devoted to him. That's the only obedience Paul cares about. He's not with them in Philippi Though he longs to be, because he says he wants to be with them for their mutual joy, but also for their progress in the faith. He wants to encourage them in their pursuit of holiness. He wants them to obey like they always have. And he exhorts them knowing they've got these seeds of division. 
So he says, work out your own salvation. Now we know their salvation is from God. Back in verse 20, 28, Paul said, your salvation is from God. And in, in, in chapter 1, verse 6, he said, God began the work in you. Like Peter said, if you remember, God caused them to be born again. But salvation is not only something they receive, it's something they do. This text is about how Christians, those that God caused to be born again, this is how Christians live their lives in the church. It is about ethics. It's about how we live, how we relate to one another. That's the context. It deals with how saved people live out their salvation together. He's talking about the outworking of their salvation in their relationships. The issue is obedience. Working or carrying out in their community the salvation that God has given them. Philippians is not going to allow us to be divisive, even over a chicken. He commends them for their past obedience. And he, he motivates them now in light of these seeds of division. You've got to work even harder. You've got to be eager to maintain the unity the Spirit has created. And it's a long obedience. If you're, if you're looking for a good time, if you're just looking for a tourist event, you won't last and pursuing holiness passionately. You have to persevere. But it's for your good. And it's for God's glory. Obedience is good. Sin is your enemy. When our kids were growing up, we thought they were pretty good kids. No major issues. There was a few. Let me tell you about them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> plenty, there was plenty of sin. But overall, we thought, you know, they grew up during the training process and, and we were grateful. Sherry and I were grateful for all the grace we observed in their lives. Then they grew up and they became adults. And they started revealing all this stuff they did behind our backs. <laughs> all this sneaking and They think it's hilarious. They talk about it all the time. Remember that? Dad thought we were down there. Supposed to be in bed. Remember, we got up, we're throwing a ball and busted the lamp. Sneaking around, cheating on tests. That we were, they were homeschooled and cheating on tests. And then telling their siblings where the answers are. <laughs> lies, all lies. Now I'm not so sure about it. Well, the joke's on them. You know, obedience isn't a bad thing. Obedience is a good thing. Obedience brings good into our lives. It brings God's blessing. We're not helping our kids when we overlook disobedience. Now, if they lied to you, what are you going to do? We're blessing them when we train them in obedience. When we teach them to obey mom and dad. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. If you think a life of disobedience is best for you, you're deceived. Paul has their be best 
interest in mind. The Lord, this, this text, this passionate exhortation to pursue gospel-driven holiness is for our good. It's for our good. It's time to rejoice. Christians are called to follow on this long, hard road that Christ walked as he walked to death on the cross. It's never going to be popular. It's never going to be understood in the world. The world highly values having fun, going fast, no pain. But the wise follow Christ. And it includes a cross. It includes death to self. Verse 12 again, working out your salvation has to do with obedience. He is saying to them in this context, no grumbling, no complaining, no disputing, no selfish ambition, not in your midst, no conceit. It protects the church. They're working out a common salvation. What God empowers them to do, we'll see this in verse 13, in their community is to both will desire this, will this, desire this, want this, and to do this. That's what God empowers them to do. And when they stop grumbling and they stop disputing and they live as God's blameless children, it's going to have an effect on pagan Philippi. People are going to see it. They're going to see it in our culture. The gospel, according to Paul, is the good news of salvation through the death, resurrection, and ultimately the exaltation of Christ, His ultimate victory when He returns. The the saving power of God is in the gospel. It is the power of God that brings this salvation to everyone who believes. And from Paul's perspective, ethical behavior is is motivated. It's empowered by this reality. This salvation that Christ alone accomplished. Paul is against any form of works righteousness. Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, faith, is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. So that no one can boast. All the glory goes to God. But he's also against any so-called salvation that doesn't produce good works. Two verses later in Ephesians 2, he says, We are his workmanship, created There's this phrase, in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's calling the church in Philippians to so live with one another that the salvation of Christ they each have experienced as God's free gift of grace is given full expression among them. Our our salvation is worked out in the church, in our relationships. To be in Christ 
affects our marriage. It affects our relationships, our relationship to our children. Work out your salvation, Paul says. Passionately pursue holiness. Second point, verse 13, God's empowering presence accomplishes holiness. It is God, verse 13, who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's his empowering presence that changes us ultimately. How, how do we win the victory over sin? Some of you this morning, you feel trapped in your sin. Some of you feel mastered by sin. You feel there's no hope. You feel you've been trying. You're ready to give up. May it never be. It's not true. That is not true. How do we win the victory over sin? By the Spirit of God. This is what Paul is saying in these verses. Bring about your own salvation from sinning, for it is God who is at work in you. It is God who is working with your will, your desire, and your wants. He'll change them, and He's working in your doing. Every day we want to enjoy this miracle of growth and godliness. This miracle of sanctification, this mystery of how we become more Christ-like. God is willing. God is doing in our lives. It's the work of the Spirit. It's by the Spirit we kill sin. It's by the Spirit we pursue holiness. How do, how do we connect with the Spirit? How do we appropriate this? How do we take possession of God's power? Hearing with faith. Maybe you want more than that. Well, that's all you're going to get. So we hear God's Word proclaimed this morning and we hear it with faith. And we take possession of God's power. Take it this morning. Take it right now. Hear God saying to you, you're not trapped. You're not buried. You're not a loser. You're not in the grip of sin. You can change. That is the clear teaching of this verse. It's not about you. <laughs> yes, strenuous effort. But ultimately, it's about Him. Hear with faith. Listen, no one in this room has less confidence in themselves than me. I am like the world's, I have no confidence anymore. I, I've had all the confidence beat out of me. I can't even ride a bike. <laughs> but boy, we must have confidence in him. In Romans 8, Paul wrote, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This, this verse, Romans 8.13, was the basis for John Owen's book, the great book, the very helpful book, The Mortification or The Killing of Sin. In it he said, you best be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's a great book. 
And this verse, Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live, was the basis for the whole book. It's the way Puritans did. They took one verse and then wrote 600 pages. Romans 8 is the greatest chapter on assurance in all of the Bible. And and in the middle of the chapter is this warning. You surrender to the flesh, decide you don't want to make war and sin anymore, you're going to perish. It's going to be the evidence that your sins were never truly canceled. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the alternative. How do we pursue holiness? How do we overcome sin and temptation? We do it by the Spirit. It's God who works in you. It's God who works in you to will. Your desires can change. And to work and to do and accomplish for the glory of God. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. And did he work? Though it was not I, but it was the grace of God that is with me. He's saying the same thing. His, his work was amazing grace. He worked strenuous effort. And when he was done, he said it was all the work of the Spirit. It was all of grace. He pointed at another. I was reading recently that Tom Brady, the famous NFL quarterback, gives lavish gifts to his offensive linemen. And that caught my attention because you may not know this, but I was an offensive lineman in high school. I was your prototypical center, six foot two, 155 pounds, no muscles to speak of. My quarterback was a highly recruited high school player, actually, and, and um, he was a good friend. And all our game films, he, at one point, you know, the, they were on a reel back in the 1800s, and he, he put them on a tape to give to all his friends. And, you know, I, I got, you know, the kids, hey, look, I get, you know, dad playing high school football here, you know, it's on tape, you can watch it. And, uh, you know, you noticed real quick, I was the center, and you noticed real quickly, you never see me. You know, it's, it's all about my friend that made the tape, you know, it's like he's the quarterback and that's who you're watching. You see me, you kind of see me and then I'm never seen again, you know. <laughs> Offensive linemen are invisible, but they're critical. We don't watch them. Brady, Brady's one of the best quarterbacks in history. He didn't get there on his own and he is very well aware of this. He played, he's played for... 20 plus years in the NFL, won six Super Bowls with the, with the Patriots, and I think last year won it with the Buccaneers, and he's done it by staying off the ground, because he's had an offensive line that keep him off his back, and so he's famous for giving them lavish gifts. He's given them Ugg boots, which I didn't know what that was, when I looked them up, I thought, if somebody gives me a pair, I'll give them back. <laughs> but apparently, they're popular with NFL players. He gave them iPads. He gave him watches, 
goose down jackets. One year, he gave each of his offensive linemen a car, an Audi Q7 SUV. It's, it's humble of him. Now, he makes $250 million a year, so, you know. He's right to do this. He understands why he's successful. He worked, but he succeeded because someone else worked for him. His offensive line deserves credit. This understates, of course, the importance of God's empowering presence in our pursuit of holiness. We only succeed. He, he's responsible for every effort we make. <laughs> but Tom Brady is nothing without an offensive line. No Super Bowls. Verse 13, it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you. Think about that. And he does it for his good pleasure. Paul wants the Christians in Philippi to get on with being God's people in every way. He wants them to understand ultimately their success comes from God. He, he, he is at work in them because he likes it. It's for his good pleasure. He does everything for his glory. God is at work in you, in us, because he likes it. <laughs> he began the good work. He sustains the good work. He completes the good work through his empowering presence. Verses 12 and 13 describe an effect and a cause. So it's a little backwards. An effect and a cause. Our work is the effect. God's work is the cause. We work because God works. And, and Paul is taking very, he's taking great care to clarify the connection because he's using the same word for work. God's work and our work. God's work and our work. It's the same word. Walter Hansen, a commentator on this letter, says, God is named here as the one who works. He is the infinite worker. When our finite work is empowered by God's work, then our work is an expression of God's work. God's total sovereignty is the air we breathe and the ground we walk on to fulfill our human responsibility to work. God's indicative, his statement of truth. God works, makes it possible to fulfill the imperative, the command given to us. Work! Without God's prior work, directing and empowering our work, all our work is meaningless and in vain. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, labor in vain. You could say, unless the Lord builds the church, those who build it, labor in vain. Paul has stated pursuit of holiness in a way that he needs to qualify it or people are going to misunderstand something that is central to his theology. And with verse 13, he puts the command into this theological perspective. When we choose the will of God, it is evidence of God's presence. It's, it's evidence of God at work within us. When we obey, it's evidence of God's empowering presence in our lives. We have the responsibility, but the ability is His alone. Augustine, 
famous church father, said, we will, but God works the will in us. We work, therefore, but God works the working in us. In our text, Paul qualifies this command by he puts it in context of God's prior action. For, see, verse 13, for. Then he explains, it's God that empowers you. They are to work at it. Obedience takes effort, it takes willing and doing, but they are only able to do this because God himself is at work in them and among them in the church. He's working in them as individuals. He's working in them corporately. So many people say nice things to me about our church. And it's always so encouraging to me because I realize that's God's empowering presence. It's just God taking sinners and changing them and glorifying his name through the gospel. God, Paul's real point here, here's what he wants to say to you. He wanted to say to the Philippians, he's on your side. <laughs> he's not reluctant to help you, okay? Believe, that's what we need to do. He, he's concerned, Paul's concerned that they understand this. God works on their behalf for his own good pleasure. It's God, the living God that's working in you. He, he empowers your willing, your wanting to. He empowers your doing. He, he empowers your obedience, not to a set of rules for our conduct. It's, it's about a mind being transformed. By the Spirit. It's, it's about that worldview. It's seeing reality by the grace of God through God's Word. It's a miracle. A worldly mind is renewed by the Word. It's a miracle. I didn't always think like this. It's a miracle. We've changed by the power of God. It's a mind that's not conformed to this age. And when they, they tell me things I should think and tell me things I should not think, by the grace of God, I think, no, 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 no. That's not true. It's a mind conformed to the character of God. His commands are good and pleasing and perfect because He's all of those things. Salvation is a radical transformation. Of the heart by the Spirit. We treasure Christ. Gordon Fee says this. All that God does. He does for his pleasure. But since God is wholly good. His doing what pleases him. Is not capricious. It's not fickle. But what is wholly good for those he loves. God's pleasure is pure love. So what he does for the sake of his good pleasure is by that very fact also on behalf of those he loves. After all, listen, it delights God to delight his people. In conclusion, 
It's all about his glory. So in verse 12, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's looking back to the Christ hymn. Christ is going to return. Everyone is going to bow their knee before him. Everyone's going to give an account before him. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we know this and we believe this. This is language from the Old Testament. God's people hold God in awe. They serve him with fear and trembling, appropriate fear and trembling. They work out their salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord Jesus Christ because God the Father has highly exalted him. He is present with the Philippian church. It is God who works in you. And there's an appropriate humility and submission there. This is not a fear that drives us away from the Lord. It's a fear that draws us to Him. To worship Him and adore Him and love Him. It's fear and trembling united with trust and love. It's not meant to make us less confident. I am sure of this. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the word of the Lord. Father, change us. May we shine as lights in this world we live in, Lord. Have mercy on us, Lord. Thank you for your word. As Jake said, Lord, we love your word. We're so thankful today that we can turn our attention to your word and be exhorted and encouraged. And now, Lord, I pray for everyone in this auditorium, those listening via live stream, Lord, I pray that they would be filled with your empowering presence and change so that we live a life worthy of the gospel we've received. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.